0: I think it was 17, wasn't it? It's about 15. Uh, just as of August the 1st, just a few days ago, Kerry was officially discharged from the uh, Army. Honorably, I might add, quickly, but uh, uh, he was one of the uh, jailers down at Fort Leavenworth. There were some fairly high-profile prisoners there that he oftentimes had direct responsibility for. You've read about them in the news. I'll let you ask him about those. But in any case, uh, definitely a major career change for him uh, now as manager of Goodwill. And, and he regrets the last two weeks not being able to be here because his work schedule was such that as manager he had to fill on Sundays when uh, other people had handled that in the past. So please pray that that can be, re- be reconciled. I know he'd rather be here in church than. Okay, and there may be other another change yet, so we shall see. Genesis chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to join me there as we uh, look to a message this morning, which will be the first on Sunday mornings for the next uh, few weeks having to do with the major event that is coming up shortly that all of us are going to be witness to, whether you want to or not, and that is a total solar eclipse. What does it mean when the lights go out in the middle of the day? Is it purely a scientific matter? Well, there's some who will present it only as that. But I'd like to suggest to you today with this beginning point, And that comes from the book of Genesis, that there are some other things that we ought to consider about this and some other events that happen up in the skies. Genesis chapter 1, where we'll find our scripture. We'll get to the scripture in just a moment. We start with this, though. On May 28th, uh, 585 B.C., actually day became night. I'm going to go ahead and switch over to... screen here so I can show you a few slides. It is what is called the Battle of the Eclipse. It took place between uh, the Lydians and the Medes who had been battling for five years. This is according to the Greek historian Herodotus. And uh, it was curious in that the uh, Greek astronomer Thales had already predicted that an eclipse was to happen that year and how he came to know that, it still baffles modern astronomers because the data he was using is, is uh, a little bit mysterious. But he had so informed the people of the Ionian Islands that that would be the case. However, the Lydians and the Medes had no knowledge of this event. And curiously, when the eclipse happened, it uh, became an omen to them. They saw night instead of day for that brief period of time. And when that occurred, they gave over the fight. And that is just one of many historical examples that could be given of people who have viewed an eclipse in a mysterious and sometimes spiritually ominous way. And I suppose that we're going to find that there will be some of these reactions as we find an eclipse in our midst, and for almost every single person here, I think I can safely say every single person here, you have not seen an eclipse like this before. You say, well, I remember an eclipse, and many of us remember eclipses in some fashion or another, partial eclipses, but the last total solar eclipse was in in this territory, this area, was in the year 1918. So unless you were born prior to that time, you have not seen an eclipse like this in this area. Now, it may be that you were in another part of the world. Uh, Eclipses aren't that uncommon. It's just that you have to kind of move around in order to see total solar eclipses. From some information that I looked up, it looks like uh, there are like two every three years, approximately once every 18 months uh, a total solar eclipse is visible on some place on the Earth's surface. So I remember in 1979 seeing a partial solar eclipse. I was in grade school and I remember the teachers telling me at that time that, uh, you know, you might think this is no big deal, uh, but you might realize, you, you might just stop and think about how long it's going to be <laughs> until you see one like this. or until the next solar eclipse. And I remember doing some mathematics at that time and thinking, man, I guess the next total solar eclipse will come when I'm 50 years old. And I remember thinking as a kid, am I even gonna be around then? Well, here I am, I made it. And for some of you, maybe you're thinking that way too. But I think it's a pretty noteworthy thing. If it's an event that's almost once in a lifetime, or or there's really not likelihood that you'll see very many of these um, that you want to at least take it in and of course it's going to be a major spectacle There are going to be probably more people that there could be more people coming into Atchison than came in for the Amelia Earhart Festival and that's a mind-boggling thing because I mean 50,000 people and more sometimes come into our community during that time. A major event like this Really deserves some attention as to also what is God doing? We as Christians should always stop to think about that. Is this merely one of the cycles that the Lord has put into play? Or is there something more here that we ought to consider? Is there a spiritual message that the Lord would have us to consider? And with that, I want to direct your attention to Genesis chapter 1 because it all begins here. Now, several years ago, I was in a class taught by a man who had pastored in a community where there was a major state university, and the Lord had opened up a door for a Bible study there, and it happened to draw several of the faculty of the state universities, many of which worked in the science department. And the book that caught their attention so much was the book of Revelation. They had a Bible study that grew and grew and grew, and it was staggering how many of these faculty members were coming, people who really didn't have much of a religious profession, and as they were coming they were just having their minds blown about what the book of the Revelation was saying, taught by a man who was very competent in interpreting. And when that book study wound down, came to a close, the question was, what should be studied next? He, uh, he asked uh, the class what their preference would be, and, and uh, the consensus was they really wanted to study the book of Genesis. And you would think that a study in the book of Genesis would be nowhere near as controversial as a study in the book of Revelation, wouldn't you? Not with this group, because the book of Genesis actually blew that Bible study apart, exposing some worldviews that were very contrary to what the Bible teaches. And it should lead us to ask uh, some questions of ourselves. Why is this book so controversial? What is it about the book of Genesis that seems to smack people in the face? And I would answer a couple of things, first of all, because it plainly asserts origins, and that is a major point of controversy today. For many who hold to macroevolution, it is settled science and even, even with some religion on their parts. So that if you would attack that or question it, it's almost uh, viewed as, as you must be a grossly ignorant person from the Stone Ages. How can you possibly question what is settled science? And I think there's something a little further. One of the reasons why it goes beyond science for some of these folks into religion is because they understand what it means. What it means if you accept the biblical account of creation as in the book of Genesis, you must recognize then that God is your creator, and as such, he has claim over you. If you made it, you own it. If you made it, then you have authority over it. If you are the product of God's creation, then you have a depth of responsibility to him as your creator. And that is precisely, I think, the point. So we come to Genesis chapter 1, and we find some information here about Origins, particularly these heavenly bodies which have captured the attention of so much of the world with this coming total solar eclipse. I want to direct your attention to verse 3. And we find here a creative word from the Lord. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now stop and notice for just a moment, it did not say that God made the sun. It does not say that God made the stars. That's going to come in a few days. But God made light before he made the light bearers. God separated light from darkness before he ever made Uh, sun moon and stars let's go down to verse 14 as we shall see and god said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and god made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 17, and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, would you give us grace as we seek to understand and apply your word understand what messages are there for us as we look up in the stars and in the sky and then lord in the scriptures we ask that you guide us and help us and may we take these messages to heart may we be good communicators of these things to others as well we ask these things in christ's name Amen. when we move on i've mentioned the battle of the eclipse between the lydians and their opponents but An important question arises as we look at this verse. And that, I trust you'll see in the purpose statements of Genesis 1 as to why God made the heavenly lights. Notice the purpose statements that occur as we look at verse 14 because you'll say, okay, why did God make make these things? Look at the four statements and the two statements and you'll see what the Lord says. Notice you have... Words that say, to rule their uh, respective domains, day and night, the greater light to rule by day, the lesser light to rule by night. God made the lights to separate the light from the darkness. God called them all good. And we find that he did these things to accomplish specific purposes. He made them for signs and for seasons and for days and for years and to give us light by both day and night. The thing that intrigues me most about all of these purpose statements is the first thing that is listed as the purpose for which God made the heavenly lights. It says in the very first place that God made them for signs. Have you ever stopped to consider that God uses these heavenly lights from time to time to give communication to the world about who made them, to give messages to the world about things that are coming or things that are about to come? And have you ever considered that maybe a periodic eclipse is a way for God to communicate to a watching world. I wanna probe that here for the next few moments with you, looking at several scriptures. Some of the points are gonna be, uh, two of the points are a little longer, two of the points are very, very short. If you're taking notes this morning, I really wanna probe that with you. What are the purposes of the light bearers? We noticed as, as we read a moment ago, and you can see it on the screen, that the purposes of the light bearers, once again, are for signs, as in verse 14, and for seasons, and for days, and for years. They are lights in the expanse of the heavens, and to give light upon the earth, and then finally to rule, as if they are king and queen over the nighttime sky or the daytime sky. So they are there in a position of ruling as the prominent lights. I don't know what you might think of if you saw this up in the sky, Actually, just a few years ago, some tourists were walking around Disney World and saw this. (laughs) Somebody had taken a plane uh, with the ability to do some skywriting and had written these words up in the sky. I'd like to suggest to you that while it might not be this clear, this pointed of a message, when you look up at the sky that the Lord has put in place, it is also communicating to us. We thought I want to draw your attention to a couple of references in the book of Psalms. If you would join me over to Psalm 8. We'll look at a few references here. Psalm 8. Then after that we'll look at Psalm 19, but you can quickly go over there in a moment. This is one of the most beautiful psalms in all the book of Psalms the, the, the uh, psalmist who is David writes in the first verse O Lord, our Lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger look at verse 3 when I look at your heavens The work of your fingers. Notice who owns the heavens. Notice whose responsibility they are. Your heavens, he says. Your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Perhaps the themes of that psalm stood out to you as they did to me as I read it, and you looked on in your own Bible. Did you notice that the psalmist in looking up to the skies is overwhelmed with God's majesty? In other words, he sees something beyond the the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. He realizes that they are just giving testimony to the glory of their creator. That God has set his glory above the heavens. Looking up at that and then looking down at himself, he says, what am I? When you think about the majesty of these heavenly bodies, their size, you think about the distance that we are from them. When you think about the vastness of the universe and then the puniness of our little planet in comparison to it. You know, we were filled with ourselves when we made a successful moon landing in the late 60s, but in terms of interstellar space, it's just a tiny little blip from earth to moon and there's this vast universe out there think about the fact that we're seeing the light from stars that are already dead and we're just getting light that comes you know in, in, in at, at its amazing speed but has would seem to have been coming for thousands and thousands of years it's a mind-boggling thing to think about how small we are on this planet and how vast our universe is, and what a great creator must be responsible for all of that. What is man that thou thinkest of him? The psalmist asks. And yet, we are over a creation, aren't we? As God is to us in some respects, we are over the creation. I think about one of our dogs who walks around with us and looks up at us and always seems to be underfoot, frankly, and Lies down anywhere I go in the house. Jaja is with me. Lies right down. She is never more than than two steps away from me. And if I get up, she gets up. If I sit down, she sits down. It's just always that way. And it's kind of unnerving to think about how that dog looks up at me and thinks I must be something really, really great. You think about what man is to animals and yet how much more God is than to us. Stop and think about that. When you look up at the heavens, that should be one of your thoughts. How great God is. The excellence of his glory. I could go on with that, but we need to press on. Would you flip over to Psalm 19 then? Psalm 19. Another reflection of looking up in the heavens by the psalmist. We see the glory of the creator here once again. Now here he's making an assertion. Not just his own reflections, but he's saying there are some positive messages that God is giving as you look up in the skies. Notice in verse 1, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork." work. He says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So God's creation is unmistakable. The sun is 93 million miles from us, we understand it varies from given time of year but any farther away why we'd freeze if it were many miles closer to us why we would burn it's the ideal distance from us by the creator everybody stop and take a breath right now okay what you breathed in is a divinely proportioned uh, mix of nitrogen and oxygen. What you breathed in was 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. We have to have the oxygen in order to survive. When we breathe it out, it's mostly nitrogen. You say, oh no, we're all going to die. We're going to suffocate. Thankfully, God put green plants in our, in our atmosphere. So they cre- take in the nitrogen and create oxygen for us. It's a marvelously orchestrated thing. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. God's message is untiring to us. Notice the language here, as I have it in my text. Day and day, it pours out speech. Why, that would be the sun. That's the thing that's lighting us up in the day. What about the moon? Next, Next phrase, night to night reveals knowledge. You say, I didn't realize it was talking to us. I didn't realize this was like, uh, an information dump from God to us. But the reality is that it is happening that way. Are you getting the information that God is giving out? Because it's pouring out speech, it's showing knowledge constantly. I'm afraid there are many folks who never stop to consider messages that God is giving in the skies. The psalmist says they're there. Notice the next verse, verse 3. You don't have to speak its language because it speaks yours. You see this? There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. In other words, this is a universal communicator to the whole world. This is a remarkable statement given in days when God seemed to be communicating almost entirely to Israel. Not to the rest of the world. But the psalmist says, oh yes, God is talking to the rest of the world too. Verse 4, he says, their voice or their line goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. You say, what line is he speaking about or voice? Well, it's like a line of text because you see words there in the parallel phrase. In other words, it's almost like newsprint. newsprint. The Lord is communicating clearly about himself through the heavenly bodies. Are you getting it, friends? This is one way God is communicating to all people. You say, what are the signs then? God is saying, don't you see my glory in everything I've made? It's a rare event, but occasionally you'll see a beautiful painting that the artist has not signed. And it often brings a person who appreciates that piece of work to investigate to say, who did this? And when you can find out who the artist is, many times it enhances your appreciation of the painting, but it's very possible that you may not know. That the artist wished to remain anonymous, and yet, even if you didn't know who the artist was, you could still appreciate a great work of art. For many people, I think that's where they're at when they look up in the skies. They see beauty, they see amazing order, they see design, they see handiwork, they see intelligence. And yet for many people, sadly, they don't know who signed the work. You say, well, where do you find the signature? I would suggest you go down to verse 7, because the psalmist says not only is there communication that comes in the sky about God there's communication that comes in the scripture you see in verse 7 it says the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul ah see many can look up in the sky and say you know I think there is a God in fact I believe there is a God and they may have a very rude a very imperfect understanding about who God is by doing that but when you start looking in the scriptures, things start to get clarified greatly. don't they? You begin to know who this God is. You understand he has a plan for your life. You understand that he has a law that you must follow. You also understand that we all as human beings are very deficient in following that law. We're sinful. And therefore we need to be converted. We need to be changed. And notice that this statement here is, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting this all. If you need to be converted, you're going to find your answers in the word of God. We go to verse 8. He says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you need to be cleaned up by the Lord? Fear of the Lord is submitting to the gospel, and it's trusting Christ. God's cleansing by Christ's blood is what makes us clean. So if you need to be clean, then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. That'll give you the cleansing from sin that you need. That is what lasts forever notice that the fear of the Lord is clean and that that is in fact it's a fact. it makes us clean and that endures forever the gospel is in that verse and that is where you find the full revelation that God has for you it starts up in the skies but it finishes in his word and that's why this is such an important song now I told you I had a couple of points that were longer and a couple that are shorter I'm just done now with one of the longer ones Let me get to a shorter one. You say, okay, so I see that the glory of the Creator is one of the signs that I'm supposed to get by looking up in the sky. Check, got that. What else? Well, some very plain and simple things. For example, we find direction in time. Now, many of you without GPS or without a compass could find where East is, because as you got up this morning, you found a really, really bright sensation coming from a particular direction, right? And you knew that must be east because that is where the sun rose. That's east, right? Okay, so we, would, we've, we were taught very young, the sun rises in the... and it goes down in the... we all know that, and therefore the sun becomes a wonderful marker for us. Now, there are days in which this was far more important. Ancient sailors had to navigate by use not only of those heavenly bodies, but the stars. Navigation by the stars has been practiced for centuries. Millennia, probably. And so these are important markers for direction and time. Now let's say you were born in, oh, 3500 BC. What does your watch look like? (laughs) You say, well, a sundial. Yeah, maybe pretty guaranteed you weren't wearing one on your wrist okay because there were different ways of telling time and let's face it that the basic unit of time that has been used from the beginning of time is the solar day in fact the creative week we just read about the evening and the morning were the first day it says that after every day of creation Now, it's interesting that it says that after the last three days of creation, days four, five, six, and those must have been 24-hour days, right? And it says that for the first few days of creation as well, before there were the sun and moon created, the light bearers. Are are you, you with me here? There are some who hold to these long day theories that might have been eons of time allowing for evolution to take place, theistic evolution. Wait a minute. If the last few days of creation clearly must have been 24-hour days, don't you think the first few days were as well? It kind of begs uh, an unnatural interpretation of Scripture to come to a conclusion such as the theistic evolutionists would hold, or evolutionists in general. So, I believe that the world was made. God made the world in six 24-hour days. I just think it's a common natural reading of God's word to conclude that. Now with that in mind, that is the basic unit of time, and we divide that down into hours and of seconds, and then we expand that unit of time into months, into years, as you know. So this is how we arrive at that. This is the basic building block of discerning time. Here's the third thing. We should understand that these signs above signify something else. It signifies weather. Would you go over to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment? Just a quick note here before we get to a couple more, uh, one last point that's a little more significant. Matthew chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says here, he says, um, verse 2, He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And then he goes on to say, this is a sign you need to be worried about. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. You say, oh, okay, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, that was just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. The Lord clarifies this over in chapter 12. He says, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days, three nights. That is the sign. It seems like a death and a resurrection that takes place over three days, three nights. That is the sign that you're going to get. And he seems to indicate it's the only sign you're going to get. Don't seek after other signs than that. And yet he points out this. Notice that there is a way of reading what weather will be by signs in the sky. My mother used to summarize it for me like this. She said, red sky by night, sailors delight. Red sky by morning, sailors take warning. Which is kind of an adaptation from what evidently was an old English proverb. Red sky by night, shepherds delight. Red sky by morning, shepherds take warning. I guess it would apply whether you're a shepherd or a sailor or anything else, right? And it's really just a matter of distilling what the Lord said in these verses. It's true you can look at the sky and make some general observations about what the weather is. I wish I had a better skill for that on Friday night. It was such a beautiful day. I decided as I drove home from work, end of day, that I was gonna open up my windows, and I did. I opened up my passenger and driver's side windows in the front, and it felt so good. I'd opened up the back passenger and driver's side windows, too, and that felt so good, I opened up the, the sunroof And uh, it felt so good. And then it was so nice outside. I thought this would be a good time just to leave it all open and let things air out. And I had every window on my car open and had a pleasant evening with my family. And We watched a movie together and then I went to bed. And you know how this is gonna end up, don't you? Yeah, did it happen to you too? Was I the only one? I am serious. I have never seen so much water in a car before as on Saturday morning when I went out. And you say, well, that's bad, Pastor. Well, include my wife in this, too. She did exactly the same thing, her car and mine, just totally soaked. And I wish I were a little better at reading the sky, you know, and knowing what's going to happen. But the Lord says that if we're astute, if we're wise, that we can do that and yet I didn't take full advantage of it. Last point this morning. That is, looking up at the sky and the light bearers that the Lord has put up there is also a way for God to signify some of the world's most important events. I'll bet you know one of these. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus was born? There were some men who came from the East. They're called magi. We sometimes say wise men. And they had come because they were astronomers that was one of their skills that they practiced and they said as they came to king herod in jerusalem where is he who was born the king of the jews because we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him and as you read in the text not just did they find out the answer Because they went to the scriptures then that's always the connection to make if you think you're noticing something in the sky look to the scriptures right but they found out well Bethlehem is where the baby is to be born so these wise men went to go find him and not only did they go by that direction from scripture but the scripture goes on to say they followed the star and the star led them right over the place where the baby was. That's in Matthew chapter two. You say, okay, I wanna know about that star. You know, an awful lot of very smart people have looked into that, and there seems to be no recurrence of such a star. Some great astronomers like Kepler have looked into this and tried to find out the the secret of all this, and they've made their best guesses, but friends, I I just have to conclude, this was a special star. for a very special time that these men were following and God gave them leading and guidance by it. here's point here's the point then God sometimes uses signs like this to mark off very significant events and let's face it there just ha- aren't many more significant events than Jesus Christ coming into the world God's Son entering our time and space to take upon himself a human body, to be born and become a man without stopping being God. So he becomes the God-man to live among us and then to be our sin-bearer, to pay for the sins of the the world, the sins that we have committed, but not one sin did he commit. A perfect and spotless sacrifice, a lamb to bear our sins and then to rise again the third day. Oh yes, that's a very important use of these heavenly bodies, these heavenly lights. One further thing, go over to Luke chapter 21. I trust you're finding this interesting. Luke chapter 21, this would be the last thing I want to show you this morning, because this event is yet to come. You say, what's that? Well, probably you have guessed it if I began by saying the first coming of Christ. You're waiting for the other Shoot a drop, aren't you? So the second coming of Christ, get it, will be accompanied by some celestial events. Look and look on with me, Luke chapter twenty-one, verses twenty-five and following. Now these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a red letter edition, you will notice it's a very red section on your page, right? And he says, verse twenty-five, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. Why, that's pretty plain, isn't it? And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. Now, this is not going to be a localized issue, is it? This is going to be seen all over the place. Verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory now when these things begin to take place the Lord says straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near God's about to bring the human civilization as we have known it to a close and he is going to return Christ will and institute his kingdom now there's more, much more that could be said here But I simply want to point this out. There will be cataclysmic events that happen up in the skies prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to stop and quickly address what some of you are thinking. Right now, you may be thinking, Okay, are you saying that the eclipse that's coming in a few weeks is actually a sign that Jesus is coming back soon? And the answer is, not really. You say, what? Why do you do that? Well, I say not really because do I think it's one of the package of the events that's described right here in Luke 21, 25 through 27? My answer is no. I don't think so. Because it's one of the regular events that we call a solar eclipse it happens, and it's happened many times before, and Jesus didn't return with those. Does that make sense? But you say, oh, okay. So, in other words, I shouldn't get all spooked out about it. Well, not so fast. (laughs) Because, well, let me me give you an example. Let me give you a, a picture of somebody that you might recognize. You say, what does she have to do with anything here? Well, several years ago, Something rather... Do you, do you think this woman has any actual power anymore? That would be the general consensus. But it might interest you to know that in 1975, Australia was not doing so well financially. In fact, they were going to shut the government down over lack of funds. And when that happened, there was a person who was working on behalf of the queen, this queen... Right here, by the name of General Governor General Sir John Kerr, who fired the Prime Minister of Australia in response to a government shutdown. And who do you think ordered that? This woman right here ordered that. Because Australia, contrary to what you might think, is not a totally sovereign entity. It is part of the British Commonwealth it is actually under control of the crown as many other nations including uh, canada in some ways and it's remarkable that at that moment in time she stepped in and exerted some powers that a lot of other a lot of people forgot she had i give you that illustration simply to point this out who is the one who is in total control over the lights of sun, moon, and stars. And if you say, God, you're right, it is God. And every so often, with an eclipse, whether it's a partial one or a total one, I think it's a way of spiritually communicating to a world that largely has forgotten it, that God is saying, hey, people, I can shut the lights off anytime I want to. I'm the one controlling the light. I made the lights. I want to urge you to look at the eclipse that's coming, not purely in scientific terms. There's some wonderful science that connects with it. It's wonderful to learn about it all. But don't miss some of the spiritual messages of the eclipse. I'll give you a few, and then we're done this morning. Number one, I think it's appropriate to see God's glory As you look at the coming eclipse and it doesn't have to be eclipsed for you to see God's glory look up in the skies and see that they're telling the glory of God as we saw in Psalm 8 and 19 I'd encourage you a further thing look for further witness in the scriptures now remember from Psalm 19 you can see certain messages by looking in the skies but what they ought to do is turn your attention then to the scriptures amen So get your mind into the Bible. Read what God's Word says and follow it. This will be a wonderful time for you to reconnect with your Creator and Savior in some very important ways. Thirdly, let it be a reminder about the signs of the times in which we live. Now we are looking at a world that is slowing down. We're looking at a world that is... In many places showing its cracks in the foundation it's getting old it's breaking up and things you say yeah i i can see that things aren't as good as they were in the beginning we are showing the signs of age and of wear and of sin and of degradation and yes that's all true these are also signs of the times and you know what it means it means the lord's going to have to return so as you see these things, let that be a message to you. And then finally, consider this as a preview of the second coming of Christ. As we noted earlier, there were signs that in the heavens about Christ's first coming. There will be further signs about his second coming. Is this one of those immediate signs? I've already answered no. I surely don't think so. But it does preview in a little way the fact that those are coming. They surely will come. And I trust that as you consider that, you will make some very important decisions. Now please don't think I'm setting a date, but I just want to give you a little thought experiment, okay? What if we by some way were able to figure out Jesus was returning on August 21st? You say, well, I would immediately dismiss that. I just don't take any sort of date setting. I'm totally with you. I, I view it in exactly the same way. But as a thought experiment, if you were absolutely sure and correct that Jesus was returning on August 21st, what changes would take place in your life? Would anything change? Would you be in church every time before August 21st? Would you make an effort to be here every single time you possibly could? Would you read your Bible every day? Would you spend much time in prayer? Are there people you would want to share the gospel with before Christ returns on August 21st? Are there some people you are deeply concerned about that might miss out if you did not witness to them, tell them that they needed to be saved before August 21st? I'm I'm just seriously asking is there anything that would change if you had a certainty that that was going to happen? Okay. You know I'm not setting a date, right? Say amen if you understand what I just said. But we know that Christ could return at any moment. He could return before August 21st. Will there be anything that changes about our behavior? Because any contemplation of Christ's return should have a practical effect in our holiness and and our faithfulness to him. It all should. That is one of the great uses of Bible prophecy. Let's not neglect it. Let's make sure that we're honoring the Lord. What kind of people ought we to be, as Peter asks, if these things are so? I ask you to seriously consider that as we conclude our service today. Father, we ask that today, these contemplations about signs that you have put up above us in the heavenly bodies would be of help to us to think sober and serious thoughts about who you are and about what you have revealed about your intentions lord you have already sent your son into this world that we might live through him i pray that each one here today may have a personal knowledge of the savior not merely that he has come but, Lord, that he has come into their own hearts and lives. If there's anyone here who would like to know more about that, Lord, I pray they might not leave until they speak with somebody and get some answers. We pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to them. Lord, we would ask as well that each believer here would have some definite concern about sharing Christ with people who look to be lost. Father, we pray that our considerations about this coming event would help us to be holy in our living, serious and separated to you. We ask, Lord, that you would accomplish these things for your name's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. We quietly stand